Okay, so we are jumping into the last message of First Peter, and I'll just say right out of the gate, I don't have uh, anything really prepared for the last couple verses with the greeting. The only thing I'll say is that um, Peter mentions the name Sylvanus, Sylvanus, that is the Greek rendering of the word Silas, who we named him after, and it says that my brother Sylvanus is a faithful brother, and he's very small, but we'll see if that pans out. I hope so. So it's been a good journey through First Peter, and I just wanted to spend a couple minutes hearing from you guys. What are some of the, I guess, things that you've taken away from this book? It's a little bit more of an informal time. Like, if we could just take a second to reflect back, and even if you want to have your Bibles open and you can flip back relative to, let's say, the Gospel of Matthew that we were in for, you know, three decades, it seems, um, First Peter was relatively short. So what are some of the things that stood out to you guys? Go ahead. the imperishable inheritance that is being kept for us. That's good. What's up? Three eighteen. There you go. And that, and that is a New Testament theme. The sufferings of Christ foreshadow our suffering, but the glorification and the exaltation of Jesus also foreshadow our glorification. We will all go through a lot, but he will reward us with a lot as well, right? So what else? I know not everybody was here from the start, but it's okay. It's okay. It's not a quiz. I'm just, uh, I'm just curious. For me, the thing that stood out to me was just the tone of the letter. I, I, I really got this idea that uh, Peter is writing from a, the perspective of a pastor. You know, he calls himself a fellow elder in chapter 5, verse 1. And I also get this sense that he's writing as a big brother who's been through a lot. Um, I feel like since we started in the Gospel of Matthew... There were a lot of weeks where Peter, as the central apostle, um, kind of doesn't look great <laughs> in a lot of stories, right? And whether it's John who wrote it or Matthew um, or Luke, um, they, they don't really depict him well. <laughs> and a lot of the things that you see Peter doing, which we will see again today, is kind of represented in the lessons that he's passing on to us. He's one of those people who say, you know, don't, don't learn the hard way. Learn from my mistakes, right? I really get the sense that Peter teach, is teaching from the vantage of the Holy Spirit, but he's also teaching from his personal experiences. And so today we're going to look at another one of those personal experiences that Peter faced. And for Peter, I believe that his thesis of today's passage or the point that he's making 
is pointing us to the humility of Jesus and the humility that God's people are called to. You know, if we take into account books like first, like Peter's first epistles, the second epistles, we have this picture of a humble elder as he describes himself. But like I said, Peter in the Gospels very, very openly struggles with pride. He very, very openly and unabashedly struggles with arrogance. Foot-in-mouth diseases, as people say, right? Um, Peter is regularly the one who, when he, Jesus says something, Peter is often the one who's like, can you clarify that for me, Jesus? Or, I don't think you're right, Jesus. <laughs> I fully disagree with what you're saying, right? That's the type of Peter, type of person that Peter was. And so question, who was it that rashly left the boat to walk to Jesus and then sunk as he saw the winds and the waves? Who was it? It's Peter, right? It's our guy, Peter. And who was it that refused for Jesus to wash his feet? And Jesus says, if you have no part of me unless I wash you, then, Jesus, then what does Peter say? Don't just wash my feet. Like, give me a shower. <laughs> I need it all, right? And who was it that took Jesus aside to rebuke him for his coming death? It was Peter, right? And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. I don't know if you've ever been called the devil, but that's tough to come back from, right? And who was it that boasted that he would never betray the Lord? It was Peter. And who was it that drew his sword and chopped off of the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest? It's once again our guy, Peter. And so Peter was no stranger to pride and arrogance. He was no stranger to pride. However, Peter would also go on to be used by God to build his church. He is called Cephas, the rock upon which I would build this church. And the reason why Peter was able to lead is because God humbled Peter. God humbled Peter. This is why some 30 years after his service to the Lord, Peter closes his first epistle with four promises or four ways that God blesses humility and why humility must be the defining mark of a true Christian. And so let's read the passage together and we'll see what Peter's saying here. If you haven't already, open your Bibles to 1 Peter 5. And we'll read from verses, verse 5, and I'm just going to go to 10. And the rest you'll have to study on your own. It says in the text here, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For, quote, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, Strengthen and establish you. Let's open in prayer. Jesus, I, I pray in your name this morning that we would hear your word very clearly. That you would not let us leave without learning. That you would not let us leave this morning without being changed. I pray that this morning we would leave with humility. That we would leave with gratitude. That we would leave with love for you and for one another. Your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. And so there's four promises we see in this text. 
four promises that he offers to those who humble themselves. And the first promise is that the humble will receive grace. Those who are humble will receive grace. We will receive grace. It says in the text that God gives grace to the humble. Last week, Mike, uh, he preached on the uh, role of elders. And verse 5 says that those who are younger, which I think refers to those who are younger, younger in the faith, to be subject to the elders. But then he jumps in and also says, clothe yourself, all of you, with humility towards one another. And so the image of humility that Peter uses is that of clothing, like a shirt or a sweater or a dress. And this type of language is extremely to his brother Paul in Colossians 3, which says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. To follow Jesus means to, in a way, take off our sinfulness and to put on virtue, to put on humility. And this act is a continual one that we have to do. And some days we wake up dressed in our pride again, right? We wake up again dressed in our pride. And so as, a, as an act of spiritual warfare, we wake up with that pride on and we have to rip it off, so to speak. We have to rip off the pride and then we have to get dressed again, putting on or adorning ourselves in humility. It is a constant act. It's not something that we do just one time in our lives. We wake up every morning and if you're looking carefully, you will see that you once again, you are dressed in pride. Once again, you are dressed in pride. Like I said before, Peter is no stranger to pride and Peter is no stranger to being opposed by God for his pride. But this idea the idea of God opposing the prideful is not unique to Peter. Can you, I already showed the, the passage there, but do you guys recognize that verse from, from James? You guys recognize that? James chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 says, He gives more grace, therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Both James and Peter are quoting Proverbs 3, verse 34, which says, Toward the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. And the idea of pride being detestable while humility being the way forward is represented all over the Bible. It's represented again and again in Proverbs, especially. Proverbs eleven two: when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. And again, Proverbs 18, 12 says, before his downfall, a man's heart is proud and humility comes before honor. And so this idea of pride being the downfall of man while wisdom and humility being the way forward in Christ is biblical. It comes back again and again. My question for you guys this morning is, how would you define pride? Just shout it out. How would you guys define pride? It's a word we use a lot, but we don't slowed down. What's that? Rights. I have my rights, right? Personal rights. What else? Thinking that you could do better. What else? Boasting in yourself. Arrogance, showing off. What else? Self-sufficiency. I am enough. I have everything I need right here. Who here has said any of those things? in either those words or in different words or maybe in your behaviors, right? Psalm 10, 4 gives us a definition of pride. It says this, In his pride the wicked does not seek him. In all his thoughts there is no room for God. In all his thoughts there is no room for God. 
There's no rooms left. Occupied. There's no room in my heart. There's no room in my mind. There's no room in my life for God. That is the voice of pride. I don't have time to read my Bible. I don't have energy. I'm too tired. Right? That's pride. Or we can use Peter's choices as a template for helping us to define pride. Whether it is refusing to accept God's grace or thinking he knew better than God or boasting in his abilities or taking matters into his own hands, we can see time and time again that Peter was no stranger to pride. For the non-believer, pride means fancying yourself as God. It means that you are the ultimate authority, that you are the one that you answer to. A non-believer, if you are somebody here this morning who does not follow Jesus, pride would say that you are the captain of your soul, right? Is that Invictus? You are the, the captain of your soul. That is the, the, the chief way of saying, I am a proud person. I navigate. I have the wheel. It's my life. I choose where we go. Me, 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 right? But for the believer, pride can be insidious as well. Though we profess Christ, we can mimic the errors of Peter. We can refuse to accept God's grace and beat ourselves up over our sins senselessly. Who can relate to this thinking? Almost like your sin is too big to handle. Who can relate to that? Yeah, it's too much for him, right? We can also fall into pride when we think we know better than God. Like when we harbor anger and bitterness towards our fellow believers instead of forgiving or refusing to take counsel from other believers who know, who know more than you. That is pride. Pride is also boasting in your own abilities, taking credit for something that God did through you, or thinking that you're better than other people, being self-righteous. That is also pride. Pride can also look like taking matters into your own hands. We mimic Peter's chopping off of Malchus's ear when we decide what is right and wrong instead of submitting to God's word. A lot of examples of pride. It is so hard, it's hard enough to live with pride, but what makes it so hard is that the scriptures tell us that God, what does he do to the proud? He opposes the proud. He, appro he opposes the proud. Let that sink in for a second. He opposes the proud. God is literally opposing those who are proud. You're saying, on this side is me, and on that side is God. You are, he is looking directly at us. We are looking directly at him in, in arrogance. You on one side, and on the other side, you have the all-powerful creator, the judge, the king of the universe, the creator of all things, the Lord of every single thing. It's you versus that. That is what pride is. And so, church, I put this forward to you guys. We, you know, we sometimes we, we like to rank sins, right? But I say this to you this morning. To oppose God means to court death. To oppose God means to court death. To, when, we, when we oppose God, it is us squaring up and boldly looking to God as though we were Lord and King. And to be quite honest with you, and it's not that I'm not guilty of this as well, but to be a, proudful, a prideful person is the most stupid posture that a person can take. Just point blank. Who are we to stand to him? What do we have to stand up to God? It is absolutely ridiculous. No one has gone up, no one has gone up against God in one. Not a single one. Not a single person has ever gone up against him and has won at all. 
And so for this reason, this morning, church, Peter reminds us that God opposes the proud, and he reminds us that we will lose. For the non-believer, it means that you will be judged. It means that at some point, you will answer for your sins. It means that at some point, you will receive the due wrath for your sins. But for the believer, it is better, but it still will hurt. It reminds us that we will be disciplined. Hebrews 12 reminds us that our kind Father in heaven treats us as sons and daughters, and the proof of that is the discipline he has for us. He will effectively and eventually knock us down to our rightful place in this kingdom for our own good. In either case, God does not lose. He is undefeated. Amen? And he will not be mocked. But we also see in the text that there's also a promise, and the promise is that God gives grace to the humble. And so early in my discipleship, I learned that grace stands for God's riches at Christ's expense. Who's heard that before? God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is God's unmerited favor. It is blessings that he give us, gives, gives us that we do not deserve. And so when we say grace at mealtimes, we are saying, in essence, though we do not deserve another meal from you, God, you continue to richly bless us with this feast, and for that we are grateful. That's why we say grace. Right? You could say, give thanks, which is, I think, just as good. But saying we say grace, just there's something there that says a lot. God's riches at Christ's expense. And so church, it is not the prosperity gospel to say that God blesses those who are humble. God blesses those who are humble. The form in which those blessings come is up to God. But in some way, shape, or form, God blesses those who rightfully regard Jesus as Christ. And those who regard... Jesus as Lord and Savior. Some of us right now in this room might be saying, I'm not that blessed. And I can really, you know, I, I hear that because I know that a lot of you are going through a lot of things in your life and so you may not feel blessed. But I can confidently say that God has blessed every single one of us this morning. Amen? First of all, for those who have put their faith in Jesus, we can say very joyfully that God has blessed us with his gift of the cross, which we celebrated this morning. We can say very confidently that we are blessed by his resurrection. He is alive. He is listening right now. <laughs> he is with us. It's by grace that we can commune with God and we can worship him openly with confidence. We can thank God, each of us, for the gift of community, of family, of provision, of shelter, a safe country to live in, work, meaningful work, Kids, and the list goes on. And so church, I never want us to forget about God's grace that he gives to us. And so I just, there's so much to say about that, but I'll, I'll just keep moving. God promises grace to the humble. And so the first promise is that he gives grace to the humble. But the second promise is that the humble will also be cared for, that we will receive care. Verses 6 and 7 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. You guys know that I hate posturing when it comes to church. I balk at language like calling ourselves prayer warriors or titans of the faith or, you know, um, whatever word you may have that we could use to describe yourselves in, or paint ourselves in, in, a, in a positive light. It's verses like these that should remind us who we really are. If God opposes the proud but promises grace for the humble, 
then the logical command is to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. The prideful see themselves as people who cannot exist under God's mighty hand. The prideful think that the hand of God is imaginary and therefore they can live however they want. There is no hand. The prideful also, maybe some, they would say they believe in God, but they don't believe that his hand is big enough to cover their lives and their issues. And then there are others who believe that his hand is big enough, but it's not mighty enough, right? How many of us, by our actions or our, our words, have doubted God's power? And so we don't submit to his mighty hand, we run from it. True humility, on the other hand, is to recognize the pecking order. He is mighty, and we are not. If you take anything, if you were to walk out of the church after t- 10 seconds of me saying that, that's the takeaway. He is mighty and we are not. You are not. As Christians, we must understand regularly that we are needy people. And I think Jesus absolutely nails that in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, and I'm just going to read a couple of them, verses 3 to 7. Scripture say, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Do you see how every single one of these qualities are rooted in humility? Every single one of them. To be humble means to be poor or bankrupt in spirit and to recognize it. To be humble means to mourn our brokenness and our sin. To be humble means to be meek and gentle and not self-seeking. To be humble is to show mercy to those who sin against you and to help those in need. In other words, to be humble means that you understand and you embrace your neediness in Christ. Embracing your neediness in Christ. We are not warriors. We are needy paupers. We are bankrupt and we are broken apart from Christ. And it's not a bad thing to think that way. It's not a bad thing to, 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 to focus on that. I'm reminded of the, the words of A.W. Tozer. I don't know if any of you have seen this quote before. Let's move over here in case you want to read it. But the quote is this. Need is a creature word and cannot be spoken of by the creator. God has a voluntary relation to everything he has made, but he has no necessary relation to anything outside of himself. His interest in his creatures arise from his sovereign good, or sorry, his sovereign good pleasure, not from any need those creatures can supply, nor from any completeness they can bring to him who is complete in himself. I'll post that in the chat later. So church, remember this reality again this morning. We are creatures. He is creator. We have needs. He does not. He fulfills requests. We make them. That's the order. That is the pecking order. As human beings, we are dependents. On the galactic tax return, we are listed as dependents, right? We are the dependents. It's a lot of birthdays and date of births to remember, but we are the dependents on the tax return. What's this? Do you guys know what this is? Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And according to this, Triangle, I mean, you know, I agree with some of it. Some of it, you know, is couched in some psychological language, whatever. But I think what it points us to is that we are people who are riddled with needs. 
We need air, we need food, we need water, we need shelter, we need sleep. We need medicine, we need jobs, we need family, we need social circles and friendships, we need intimacy and connection, we need love and respect, we need moral guidance and opportunities to be creative, and so on and so forth. I don't think this is exhaustive. Our very identity is that we are people who are in need. And not only do we need these things, but we are at a constant threat of those needs not being met. For that reason, we by human nature are anxious people. Anxiety is not something that just a subset of our population faces. We, in some way, at many times in our lives, are anxious because we are afraid of these needs not being met. Now, some of us are blessed to not be in this bottom category. Many of you have not felt the stress of being without food or warmth or rest. Some of us have never identified with green. You grew up in a very safe home and you've never faced insecurity. Some of us have grown up with good friendships, intimate friendships. Some of us have grown up with feelings of accomplishment and being pushed. But at some point in all of our lives, we will face the anxiety of our needs being threatened our very sustenance being threatened. We are like, in a lot of cases, newborn babies who cry at the thought that our basic needs will be taken away. This is why the promise is made like this. For those who acknowledge and embrace their need, we are given the command to cast our anxieties on him, to submit our needs to God who has none. But I love, I love where the verse goes. I love where the verse goes. The reason we can cast all of our anxieties on him is because what? Because he cares for us. It's not only because he can meet our needs, but because he wants to meet our needs and he cares for us. Look at this verse here. We have a God who does not need us and yet he cares for us. And I'm reminded of this verse. It says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place... What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Think about that for a second. Just read those verses and let it hit you. Look at this world. Look at his creation. Look how big it is. There were so many things that existed before we even got into the picture, right? We don't come until later. There's so much that has happened before we even enter the picture, and yet God cares for us. He cares for us. He meets our needs. Whether you believe in him or not, the very air that you breathe is proof that he cares for you in some way. And so God promises that if we are humble, he will care for us. And church, I pray this morning that as as you admit, maybe I should say as you embrace the fact that you are weak and needy, I pray that God will offer you peace and comfort as you are reminded whose hand you are under. The prideful must be terrified of God because of the hand. And that mighty hand is what will end up crushing them. But for those who know Jesus, the hand that crushes the proud is the same hand that saves us and shelters us and cares for us. Amen? We hide under and we humble ourselves and we submit to his mighty hand because it is good for us. And that leads us into promise number three, which is that the humble will also be protected The humble will be protected. This is what the text says. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour him. 
or someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So church, like I said before, Peter speaks from experience. Here he tells us to be sober-minded and watchful, and we know that he failed this very command in the Garden of Gethsemane as he literally fell asleep twice, only to awaken from his slumber to chop a guy's ear off. Right? And those who have a hard time waking up, I am at the, of the foremost. I can relate to that. <laughs> it's not easy. But this isn't the experience I'm thinking of that might be triggering Peter to connect the ideas of humility and pride to our adversary, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion. I've already talked about it in a little bit. In Luke 22, Jesus takes Peter aside to warn him. Right? He tells him, you're going to betray me. And so, what does Peter say in verse 33? Jesus, tell me how I can avoid this. Right? Is that what he says? Wrong. That's not what he says. He says, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, the, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. And so Peter, if you were to ask him, maybe one day we will be able to, what would be the worst fall? What would be the worst act of pride, your worst regret in life? And he would say, it's this. He denied his Lord and Savior three times. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, let anyone who thinks that he, is, that he stands take heed lest he fall. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And so let's look at the relationship between Satan, our suffering, our temptation, and the protection that Jesus offers us today. This is the story here. Luke 22, verses 31 to 32. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And so this is a hard verse to read, right? What does it mean that Satan demanded to have him? What does it mean that Satan wanted to sift him? What does that have to do with faith? What does it have to do with turning again? It opens up a whole bunch of questions, and we are now formally in the time of the sermon where we will unpack some theological truths about the devil. You've been warned. There's a lot. First, we must understand that the devil hates us and wants us to fall from faith. Satan wants us, even after we profess Christ, to fall away from our faith. And this is the reason why Satan is described as our adversary. He is our enemy. And so church, don't forget that. Satan, the devil, whatever you want to call him, Lucifer, he hates your guts. He wants to see you dead in your faith, in your body. He wants to see you in a gutter. He wants to see your family destroyed. He wants to see you come to ruin. He wants to see your family split up. He wants all of those things. He hates you. He hates your guts with everything that he can, right? And so he is relentless. Him and his kingdom are relentless to try to take us and take our faith away. So that's the first thing we need to remember. The second thing we need to remember is that Satan is very powerful. He's very powerful. And I know in a lot of messages about the devil, we try to minimize his role. We try to minimize his power. I'm not going to do that this morning. We have to understand that Satan is very powerful. And so there's another story where we see the power of Satan displayed in the suffering of another man in the Bible. Do you guys know who it is? 
Job. Satan's like right up in there, chapter 1 and 2, and then he disappears, right? In Job chapter 1 and 2, we see that Satan has the power to do a bunch of things. I'm just going to list a few of them. And maybe you can relate to some of these things. First, we see that Satan empowers or even drives the Sabians and the Chaldeans to kill Job's livestock, his cows and his camels and all that. Satan has the power to to enlist and use men to commit acts of violence. So when you open your phone and you see that there is violence in the world, don't look further than this. We know who's behind it. That's why Jesus says that he was a what from the beginning? A liar and a what? What's that? He's a murderer, right? We also see that Satan sent fire from the sky to devour more livestock and to kill Job's servants. That was the devil. We also see that Satan sends a tornado that devours the house that his kids were eating in. It says in the text that his kids were celebrating and drinking wine when winds from the heavens came down and lifted up the house. Right? What's that? Satan had the, has the power to command creation and to destroy things. And then later in Job chapter 2, we see that Job is struck with sores all over his body and uses the really gross description of him scraping his skin with broken pottery, right? You've heard anyone who's read that, you will see that. And so theologically, it is correct to say that Satan and his demons have the power to attack Christians and are behind much of the suffering we experience in this life. Whether it is violence or persecution, natural disasters or sickness, Satan and his demons have a role to play. Let's go back to Jesus talking to Peter. And there he says that Satan demanded to have Peter and the rest of his disciples, which is eerily similar to Job chapter 1 and 2. In Job 1 and 2, we see that Satan is going to and fro across from the earth for people to devour. However, we learn in the text that Satan cannot have Job without God's permission. In fact, after, Job himself after God himself suggests Job, Satan says, Have you not put a hedge around him and his house? And all that he has on every side? Up to this point in the story, Job was untouchable to Satan until God gives him permission. And so this opens us to our third theological truth, which is that God is sovereign over the devil. He is sovereign over Satan. Whether it is Peter and the disciples or Job or even Jesus himself during his crucifixion, we see that Satan must get permission from God first to harass his people. And many times, God says yes. Next question we have to ask is, why does Satan want us? And Jesus answers it for us. He says, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. He demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And so it took a little bit of research, but I found this really awesome quote by John Piper where he explains in his very uh, vivid imagery what that means. And I'm just going to read it for you guys. It says in the text that Satan, or sorry, that John Piper says, Satan has a big sieve. Do you guys know what that is? A sieve? You want to explain? Right, so it's like a strainer, right? For those who do not, do not sieve soil. You, maybe some of you have sieved pasta, right? It's the same, it's the same principle, right? You, you, you shake the whatever the object is in the sieve or the strainer, and you shake it until the stuff you don't want falls out, right? 
So it says here, Satan has a big sieve with jagged edged wires forming a mesh with holes shaped like faithless men and women. What he aims to do is throw people into the sieve and shake them around over those jagged edges until they are so torn and weak and desperate that they let go of their faith and fall through the sieve as faithless people right into Satan's company. The sifting of Simon Peter and the others is Satan's effort to destroy their faith. And this remains Satan's main goal today. It is relatively unimportant to Satan whether we are healthy or sick, rich or poor. What he wants is to sift us of our faith, to sift out our faith. If he can do it by suffering, he will try that. If he can do that by wealth, he will try that. Is that helpful? From the story of Job, this is how Satan intends to sift us. This is what he wants Job to do. Job says this, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. That is what Job is trying to, or sorry, what the devil is trying to get Job to do. He is trying to put Job in a place where he curses God to his face. In the story of Peter and in the story of Job and in our story, Satan means for our suffering to result in us cursing God to his face. Satan wants our faith to fail. And so theologically, this is it. God gives permission to Satan to strike us with various types of suffering. Satan and his kingdom abuse and harass us with the hope that we will deny Jesus and fall from faith. That is the role of the roaring lion who is seeking someone to devour. Let's continue with what it says. Jesus says this to Peter in verse 32. He says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Though Satan harasses us with all manners of suffering, by God's permission, we also get this image of Jesus Christ, who is our high priest, who prays for us and intercedes for us and is keeping us. Though we are attacked by Satan and his kingdom of darkness, Jesus Christ himself is the sustainer of our faith. And in our Bible study on Wednesday with the men, we saw this picture of Jesus Christ who is an advocate, who stands by the Father and is basically our lawyer and is dispelling the accusations of the devil who seeks to accuse us day and night, right? And so when, when Satan accuses us, we can say, yeah, I am sinful. You got that right. But who took my sin? I'm clean. Right? Jesus rose from the dead and now he's there. And now we have an advocate. And so anything that Satan has to say about us, though it may be true, because liars don't always lie, right? Liars lie, but they're not, it's not like every single thing a liar says is wrong. Satan says true things. It's just that he's not saying the full truth. And so for us, the full truth is not only that we are broken, sinful, weak people. We can also say that we hide under the mighty hand of God because he has saved us. Amen? In other words, church, we can conclude this about our life on this earth. Satan is indeed stronger than us. But our Father in heaven is infinitely stronger than Satan. Amen? Infinitely stronger. Anyways, back to our passage for today then. What is the takeaway? Peter tells us to be sober-minded and watchful because our adversary prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And the path of pride says that we do not need God, that our ways are wiser than God, that God's hand is not mighty to save, that we are not sinful people in need of a Savior, and that we are the captains of our souls. 
In other words, if Satan was a shark in the waters, not to switch up the animal picture, but if, if the devil was a shark in the waters, pride would be the blood that lures Satan to our side. Pride is the opening that invites the devil into our life. When we are prideful, we become open for sifting by Satan. Pride in the midst of suffering leads to exactly what Satan's goals are for our life, with it, which is for our faith to fail. And so church, I put this before you this morning. Pride will attract the devil. Humility repels him. Pride attracts him. Humility repels him. Those who regard Satan as powerful and more importantly, those who disregard God as infinitely stronger are 100% vulnerable to be devoured. If we deny Satan's power, we open ourselves up. But more importantly, if we deny God's power, we open our, ourselves even more. In our suffering, God, sorry, Satan utters to us awful lies. He tells us that we should not be suffering. He tells us that our suffering is not legitimate. He tells us that our suffering is futile and random. He tells us that the reason we're suffering is because God is punishing us or hates us or is out of control. Who here has bought into any of those lies? That our suffering is not legitimate or that he's punishing us, right? We're going through a bad thing because God's mad at you. Who's, who's felt that way before? It's not easy. It's not, it's not hard to go there, right? The outcome of our suffering being random and futile or punishment or illegitimate leads to what Satan said to, God, to Job, which is to curse God and die. That is what Satan is telling us. If we buy into his lives, that is the outcome. And so church, this is our outcome if we entertain and feed pride in our hearts. Our faith will die. Yet the promises of humility is this, that God will protect us from the evil one. Let's see here. Pride tells us that God is against us, but humility tells us that God is for us. Pride tells us that we need nothing. It says, I am strong and I can get anything I need, right? That's why it is hard for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. I have no needs. I can just buy it. Humility says, I am weak and need God. Pride says, I will take matters into my own hands, right? It's like Peter chopping off dude's ear, right? But the humble say, help me, God. And the prideful say that life and suffering are futile and random, whereas we, as God's humble people, say, my God sovereignly uses my suffering to make me more like Jesus. If you can detect any times where you have either said or uttered or thought about things on the left, that is pride. And so church, we need to understand that pride is the very nature of Satan. It is why he fell from grace as an angel. It is the root of sin in the Garden of Eden as Satan tempted Adam and Eve with things like, did God really say? And pride is how Satan was operating with Jesus as he tempted him, tempted him in the desert to disobey his father, right? Wasn't he telling Jesus to say a lot of this stuff? Right? Just turn those stones into bread. You don't have to be hungry. Just do your thing. Like, you have the power for this. Take it into your own hands. Why are you here suffering? Like, you don't have to. Like, you could just, just, just like, clip, you know, snap your fingers and you're out of here. You don't have to go through this stuff. That's the stuff. That's the voice of Satan, right? He's not that diverse. <laughs> He's not like, it's not like he has a wide toolbox that he is able to draw from. He has, like, three tools, Right? 
He can push you into shame. He can accuse you and he can lie to you. That's pretty much what he does. He, it's not like he's like, you know, this like super skillful guy who, who, who has a whole wealth of things. He's not all powerful. He's not all knowing. He has three tools, but he uses them well, which is why Genesis 3.1 says that he is crafty. Verse 9 commands us to resist him, firm in your faith. Another word for this is to humble yourselves. Or how does James say it? I don't have that. How does James say it? He says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee to you. As Christians, we submit to God and flee from Satan. The world does the opposite though, right? The world submits to Satan and flees from God. I'll say it again. We submit to God and we flee from Satan, whereas the world flees from God and submits to Satan. Don't get it twisted. Of course, we know in the story that Peter did go on to fall. And notice that Jesus did not take away Peter's temptation, but he helped Peter to grow through his failure. Peter would go on to deny Jesus three times. But immediately after, we see that Peter was broken over his sin and he repented. And later, Jesus restores Peter and tells him to feed his what? Feed my sheep, love my sheep, protect my sheep. Recall what Jesus commanded to Peter. He said, and when you have turned again, do what to your brothers? Strengthen your brothers. Jesus gave Peter a special job. Though Satan demanded to have all of his disciples, and all of them did abandon Jesus at the cross, Peter's job was to strengthen his brothers. Isn't that the Christian life? Isn't that it? Yes, Jesus himself prays for us. He keeps us. He strengthens us. And he is the one who sustains our faith. As our shepherd, this is what it says. I will give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. We are unsnatchable, unpluckable, unstealable. I'm making up words. It's okay though. We cannot be stolen. We cannot be kidnapped. We cannot be taken out of Jesus' hand, his mighty hand. And yet let us notice another design for God's community, which is why he tells us to clothe ourselves in humility. God's design for the church is that we would turn and strengthen our brothers, our sisters. In other words, another way we resist the roaring lion is by banding together and helping one another. Satan works well when we are isolated, but when we are together, we can protect one another. We can help one another to resist firmly in our faith by encouraging one another, by using our spiritual gifts, by serving, by being generous, by rebuking, by restoring, and by loving. In other words, we resist Satan by doing what Peter commanded in the first place, which is to clothe yourselves, all of you, with what? With humility. Put on the humble shirt and take off the pride. And so in closing, I want to leave us with this last promise that he gives to the humble. The humble receive grace are cared for, and are protected from the enemy. But when this is all said and done, we the humble are also exalted, restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established. And this is the glorious promise that he has made to us in other parts of the Bible. What does Paul say in 2 Timothy? If, we're, if we suffer with Christ, we will also what with Christ? Be raised, I think that's another part, but the one from 2 Timothy says we will also reign with him. We will reign with him. And so I just want to close off with this amazing promise for you, church. Everything you go through in your lifetime will be worth it because of what Jesus has promised to you here. I don't think I have it. 
First, he promises that he will exalt us. He will say to each one of you at the end, well done, my good and faithful servant. And he will tell you, you have run the good race and fought the good fight. Amen? He will tell you that. Second, he will restore us. The scriptures say that he will wipe our tears and bind up our wounds. Third, he will confirm us. He will remind us that everything was worth it. Everything he went through, everything the saints have gone through, and everything that you have gone through will be worth it in the end. Fourth, he will strengthen you. Never again will you be a person who is needy and weak. We will be protected forever from the things that, that threaten us, right? If we go back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that's gone, right? It's provided, and there's no threat of losing it. And fifth, he will establish us. He will set us up. Never again will we be unstable or vulnerable. But perhaps my favorite part of the text is this part where it says, he's called us to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore us, confirm us, strengthen and establish us. He himself will do it. He's not sending an ambassador. He's not sending your pastor, right? Though I try. He's not sending a representative. He himself will be the one to do it. And so church, I, I, I urge you to look forward to the very day where Jesus himself, to your face, to your very face, will speak with his actual mouth and his audible words will, ent- will exit his mouth and enter into your physical ears. They, they will work better than they work now. You'll hear everything. And he will use his physical hands to wipe away the actual tears from your physical eyes. He himself will do that. He himself will do it. Amen? That's the promise of God's word. And so, like I said, I, I have not touched the, the, the greetings at the end of it. I encourage you guys to read it. But um, we are grateful this morning for Peter's contribution to our lives. We thank God for the letter that he's written. Um, we will be doing a couple of messages uh, related to Christmas this month. And then I'm happy to announce that uh, January, the first Sunday of January, we're going to be starting a series on the book of Genesis. Book of Genesis. So I am not as versed in the, in, the, in the beginning as I am in the starting. So this is out of my wheelhouse, but it'll be fine. So we are grateful to be able to examine a lot of different history. We will be in the garden. We will look at creation. We will be able to unpack some really uncomfortable verses. We might have to send the kids out for some of them. We'll probably be there for a year and a half, maybe more. I'm just, you know, 50 chapters, right? So, um, but we will get through all the patriarchs. We will get through a lot of fun stuff in there. And I'm grateful for that. So let's, let's end in prayer. And I encourage you guys, after we've tidied up, just to fellowship with one another and do what Peter has commanded us, which is to clothe, clothe ourselves in humility towards one another. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word that you've given to us yet again. And you've made some really big promises to us. I just pray as we leave this morning that you would humble us. And I know that's not a fun prayer. But God, we also pray that you would use our humility to give us grace. That you would be true to your promise. That you would give us grace. That you would care for us. That you would protect us from the evil one. And that one day you will exalt us and strengthen us and confirm us and establish us 
that you'll do all those things yourself. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.